Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast. I'm your host, as always, Colton Petrie, and with me today is Ben Cooper. Ben Cooper has been beekeeping since the age of 14, giving him nearly five decades of experience firsthand, and for the past 10 years, he has been teaching a college-level course to those wanting to become beekeepers. There's a whole lot to be learned from this episode, and after doing the interview, I will never see a one-quarter cup the same way ever again. Embrace the bees with me for the next hour as we dive into the life of a beekeeper. Just before we get into that, I wanted to let everyone know that I got selected to be a panel speaker for the National Publicity Summit in June, which isn't sponsoring the show, but they are paying me to be there. I'm just telling you, the listeners, because this is a really exciting chance for me to speak publicly about my podcast, and it's a great chance for the show audience to grow. I still dream of making this my full-time job, but it's a really tough road to get there. So, honestly, thank you all for being here and listening to these episodes. It means the whole world to me that anyone cares at all. Now, let's get that honey! Welcome to the show, Ben Cooper. Hey, thanks for having me, Colton. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what you do? Well, I'm a 40-year-old trapped in a 60-year-old body. That's the way I like to uh, uh, explain myself. My body's starting to limit things that I would think I'd like to still be doing in my mind, but uh, I retired early to do some writing, and I've been teaching beekeeping classes uh, regularly for the last 10 years in the spring and fall, but I started beekeeping at the age of 14 as a 4-H project. And I was left on my own because there was nobody else doing it. So I had no mentors and I learned a lot of things by mistakes. And so now I'm teaching people, don't do the mistakes I did. And uh, you can actually work and enjoy and look forward to getting into your beehives. Yeah. When we were setting up our schedule to do this episode, I just kept coming back to the image in my mind of walking into a swarm of bees And it was like having a waking nightmare for me. And I just thought, why bees? You know, there's a lot of good reasons. Out of all the insects on the planet, bees have been studied and researched more than any other insect. They are uh, an an environmental indicator species. If something's going wrong in an environment, the bees are going to be telling you uh, something. If there's no bees around, there's a problem. And about 30, almost 30 years ago, bees started having issues and it became a problem. Yeah, 20 years ago, they started having a problem. 40 years ago, almost anybody could be a beekeeper. You'd still have some issues, but now due to some other issues, it's hard. And so you have to be educated and keep educated. You just can't go out there. You know, uh, Colton, if it was easy, everybody would do it, right? But there's usually two things that everybody knows about bees. They make honey and they sting. Mm -hmm. One of them, most people like the other one, most people hate. And so uh, once you get through that, it's really fascinating. The more I study and learn and watch and listen and, and because the bees do actually communicate and give me information, 
the more I realize I need to study. They're just fascinating, just drawn to them. Yeah. And that's one of those things that you had said, anyone could have done this. And now it's become kind of, you know, you need a lot of education and training to get into this because you teach it at the college level. So this is not some entry level, like, oh yeah, if you're looking for a, a hobby in middle school, like beekeeping is easy enough for you. Like this is post high school. People are doing this. Yeah. Um, there's people, doctors that are still researching and they still don't know. 20 years ago, the, the term colony collapse disorder kind of went through across the world and they didn't know why. 20 years later, they still don't know why, but they know that it uh, is directly involved with a parasitic mite that affects the bees. And so where I live, uh, it's pretty easy. People can get tick bites and there's viruses that accompany tick bites. And so if um, you look at it from that standpoint, there's about up to 20 viruses that can be vectored to a bee from these mites that are, are affected to them. So it, it's hard to keep an eye and, and watch what your bees are going on. It might mask something else that you think is wrong, but it's root problem usually is uh, today for beekeeping. The biggest issue is something as small as a pinpoint, um, you know, a pencil point. That's what I was going to ask is like, a mite, when we talk about it, like looking at the size of a bee is already not very big to the naked eye. Can you see a mite with your yeah. bare eye? Yeah, my eyes are getting visually challenged as I get older. But uh, yeah, you can see them, but they hide in places. Um, a lot of the mites, they reproduce in the larva of the bee. The larvae are white and a female mite is brown. So that contrast, you can see them really well in that, but you can actually see them on the bee. You see them on the back, but they actually will more likely be on the underside of them, the abdomen, because they used to think that uh, they kind of made them too much like a tick and think ticks suck the blood out of something. Well, the bees actually get fat to go into winter went up here in the north where I am, uh, where it gets cold. So kind of like a bear fattens up for hibernation. Bees don't hibernate, but they do fatten up. And the mites actually go for adipose tissue, which is fat. And so they will go to their abdomen. Um, in elementary, well, probably fifth grade science, we our insects have a head, a thorax, and an abdomen. And the fat tissues that I try to get my bees big, strong, healthy, full of nutrition to go into winter in a less active state, mites tend to feed on the adult bees in their abdomen, but their target is the larva, the young larva, because the way their cycle is, it's just uh, uh, they're in a protected state because they cap off the top of the, the cell and the mites will reproduce inside that cell and the bees don't do anything, can't do anything about it. So it's a battle. It's just a beekeepers have to learn how to treat for that or they won't. They'll be bee havers, not beekeepers. A bee haver is somebody that replaces their bees every year. A beekeeper is somebody that keeps them over winter and, and reproduce them. So, you know, Colton, one of the questions that I get often that people are, they think bees are getting near extinct and they're not. Honeybees aren't native 
to the United States, but they're naturalized. They've been here pretty much as long as the Europeans have been here. They, bees came from Europe to the United States, so they're naturalized. Uh, some people say, well, we shouldn't have them here because they don't belong here. Well, we would, I would fall in that category as well because I'm a naturalized um, American. My great-great-grandfather came from England when he was two years old. And um, so they're here, they're beneficial, they're pollinators, they're unique. They've got uh, a bunch of unique traits that, uh, you know, maybe we might dive into a couple of them. Yeah, it was actually one of the listener questions that I got sent just said, are concerns of bees going extinct valid? Uh, Native bees, we have some native bees that are kind of on that watch list. Um, They tend to be part of, there's bees and wasps and hornets, and some people claim all of them, they'll see a yellow jacket and say, that's a bee, it's technically in the hornet family. But, um, you know, and so bees are highly prolific. They will reproduce. In nature, they're in a tree cavity. Or a lot of times I cut them out of somebody's wall in their house. Or, you know, between the second and the attic floor, they set up in there. And uh, so they they build up their space and fill that space. When that base, space is completely filled up, they need to split off and start another hive. So uh, last couple years, my own bees, I probably caught 19 to 20 swarms off of my own bees. And what I do with them is then give them to people that take my beekeeping class or sell them at a very cheap price. So they don't have to pay the high price of to start off. The bees are going to be, you know, anywhere, a package of bees, which is three pounds with a queen, they're going to cost anywhere from 125 to $200 just to start. And I will catch a swarm and, and sell them to people for way less than that, like 35 bucks, but they've taken my class and they've learned something. And so they've had that mentoring beginning. And so they know the basics, but they're not as threatened and endangered, but they are dying off. The average beekeeper across the United States over the last five years probably loses 40% of their beehives. So Colton, if you would look at that from a bigger agricultural standpoint, a Texas cattle rancher can't lose 40% of his cows and be sustainable. And so about 20% is sustainable, but you know, sometimes people think we're crazy because we'll stick our hands and our heads into a beehive and go into, um, you know, with the, with the knowledge that you probably might get stung. Yeah. That is a question I for sure thought about was how often do you get stung? Um, it's rare, but it's usually my fault. When I open a hive, I, I had to replace a queen. Um, actually this is maybe uh, hopefully not getting too off on a uh, tangent, but uh, a friend of mine has Lyme disease and he's using bee sting therapy as part of his, uh, ability to get over that. And so he gets stung 30 times a week and he needs bees. Well, his bees didn't make it through the winter and I got him new bees and made a split and he provided a queen for me for a replacement for the bees that I gave him. And he wanted to learn how to, how do you install this queen in a little package, a little, uh, you know, a little plastic cage. 
And so I opened up my, I said, well, let's just walk to my beehive. Neither of us had a veil, gloves, anything on, took the lid off, pulled a frame out and just moved uh, some wax away and fastened that queen cage into the beehive so that she could get acclimated to the bees in that hive would get acclimated to her. And after a couple of days, then they release her by eating some candy. That's a block. And then she comes out and they accept her as queen. And so we did that with no gear, nothing on, but I know some of my hives or I know all my hives and I know which ones, what I would consider hot uh, that you open the lid and they're going to be bouncing off of your screen. You better have a screen on in front of you or a veil. And this other hive, I knew that they needed a queen and they were more receptive and they were calm. So, you know, the more you, I don't care if it's a dog or any kind of animal, the more you work with it, the more you understand them and you understand their language. Bees are excellent at communicating. They communicate at least five different ways through pheromones, through sounds, through vibrations, um, through movements, uh, and through their tongue, their proboscis. They share information almost as quick as a, or a tweet could go out uh, or a Facebook message. You know, they're sending that in a hive. If a bear's knocking a beehive over, they send that information within um, seconds, yeah, milliseconds. And so if I learn to read that information uh, and see what the bees are telling me, that helps me understand their temperament. Yeah. Well, and that makes me think when you said you know, you're transplanting this queen into this hive that needed one, are queens just kind of, you know, a random occurrence? No, every hive should have one good viable, what we call queen, right? Queen. Once in a while you'll have two, but you know, usually in a household, you got one person in charge of the kitchen, you know, um, and it, you, you can't have two cooks in the kitchen. Sometimes it, it conflicts, but there's a uh, competition and the resonant strongest queen will usually prevail. Not always, but usually most people think the queen is in charge and she's not. She sets pheromones that set that hive uniquely from the hive next to next to it or another hive the workers are the ones. If the queen isn't producing 1,200 eggs a day when the temperature is right and laying 1,200 eggs a day, they've sensed something's wrong with her and they will actually kill her. They can kill her and make their own new queen. But it's a limited time that they have to work with. So her job is she gets pampered, she gets fed, she gets groomed, but her job is to lay eggs and put a fair amount out says, all is well with our hive. She does inventory of the pollen and nectar. They need that pollen is protein, nectar is carbohydrates. And so they need that to survive just like any other critter. And if things aren't right in that hive, she'll quit laying. And so sometimes the workers will say, is there something wrong with a queen or is there our food sources limited? And so, you know, droughts and other winter and other things uh, affect that as well. There could be 50, 60, 80,000 bees in a colony, and they all are understanding each other through usually the pheromones. And it, you know, there's an aggressive pheromone, there's a calming pheromone, there's uh, different things that queens produce that. But the other bees also have their own uh, pheromones as well that they can uh, help 
communicate. So, you know, it's um, it's just a dynamic communal. It's kind of like one entity made up of 50,000 individuals. And you said they can kind of make their own queen. Is that like there are male and female bees and any female bee has the capability of being a queen? Absolutely. You know, that's a good point. Most people don't know that. But um, all eggs that are fertilized are female. All non-fertilized eggs are males, which are drones. So there's workers or drones, and then you have a queen. So uh, here's an interesting fact uh, that most people don't realize. There's only a very, I only know of two species on this planet that can predetermine the sex of the offspring. You know, people can't do that. No. Sometimes they wish they could in some <laughs> countries, you know, they want to limit how many male versus female, but the queen bee actually goes in to a cell. First, make sure it's clean. Second, measures it with her front legs, the width, the depth of it. And based on the size of the cell, she will lay a fertilized egg or a non-fertilized egg. So it's based on that cell structure, what she's going to lay on there. If it's bigger and deeper, then she will lay a drone, um, an unfertilized egg, and that's a male. You only need about 5% in a hive to be drones um, because if she's mated, she mates within the first three weeks of her life and she's done for, she's done. And she can appear in the North. She can live to be three years old. Uh, in the south, five years old, where it's warm all year long. But I requeen my hives every year because a young productive queen produces more eggs. They only mate so long, and so they only have so many. They only have so much sperm basically to fertilize. But that she uses her muscles. She's got eggs on one side, and the spermaceca on the other. So she flexes her muscles when she knows how to lay an egg, either male or female, fertilized or unfertilized. That is all very new information to me. Um, I had this thought that like queens were just born queens. Like they just came out of the egg and they're like, oh, that's a queen. (laughs) No, No, here's what happens, Colton. It's based on the food. It's based on their diet. You've probably heard of royal jelly before. I have in a pop Um, culture setting. Yeah, different setting, but royal jelly is produced by young, very young bees, and it's secreted from their uh, worker bees. And it's just think of it as Perina dog chow has dog food and then a higher protein dog food for large breed dogs. Right. And you need to feed that to that puppy because years ago they thought dogs, uh, certain dogs, big dogs like St. Bernard's got hip dysplasia. It wasn't the breed, it was the food that they eat as a puppy. And so all they have to do is to take a any female egg that's laid, they just, all, all eggs for three days get fed royal jelly. Then they get fed a mixture of protein, which is the pollen and honey, which is the carbohydrates for workers. The queen will continue to get that Uh, royal jelly through her development and that's a higher concentration of protein and it develops her into this massive egg-laying female 
dominant female. So that's a good thing to know because if something happened, if I'm a clumsy beekeeper and I'm banging my hives or my frames around and I smash the queen or damage the queen, those workers then can just go to an egg and continue to feed it royal jelly and they can reproduce a queen on their own. If I want to produce queens, then I can do some things in my hive to make new queens for my for my own purpose to make splits or if somebody else needs one or whatever. So uh, yeah, they just, they're just not, the queen doesn't lay an egg and, and they just say, this one happens to be a queen. It's just a female. Any female can have the ability to become a queen, but it has to happen in the first four days. All the other workers are still females. They have ovaries. They have, they actually can lay eggs, but they never went out on mating flights so all their offspring, if they would ever lay offspring, and it happens once in a while, um, will be drones. Drones don't collect nectar, don't pollinate, they don't get pollen, they don't do much other than um, help with some hive temperature, and they mate with queens. And so you don't you don't need a hive full of drones because your hive's going to crash. Gotcha. Yeah, that was one of the other things you said is, you know, a queen can live five years in the right climate, but it only mates during that first kind of three week period. That's a lot to like store for a very extended amount of time. Like you take three weeks worth of mating and you spread it out over the course of five years, like just on your own is really impressive. I think probably anywhere in the animal community entirely yeah and if you think of it in cow go back to the cow uh, example a dairy cow a young dairy cow that has a calf starts producing milk by the time that cow has her second or third calf she's probably at her peak but by the time she might be 10 years old she's not producing near the milk that she used to and so uh, one of the common practices is for people in the north is to requeen every year so that you have a good producing queen. And what happens when you swarm or make splits, that oldest queen, the queen that's the dominant, leaves with a swarm, or you take that queen out and you put her in a new box and start a new hive on its own. And so you're requeening and your base or source hive gets a new queen and you keep a young queen that's more productive. Yeah. And that made me want to go back to one of the other things you said. If I heard you correctly, you said the queen is not producing like 1,200 eggs a day. They're like, oh, something's wrong with our queen. 1,200 seems like a lot of eggs. Uh, it down, down south in the climate, they expect sometimes 1,500 eggs a day. And here's what's really neat, because just in the um, lifespan of a worker that's let's say a worker hatches out today, our climate's warm, are only going to live to be about six weeks old. And the first portion, about a week, they spend secreting these glands and they're, they're in charge of nursery duty of the young that, because they're healthy, they'll build comb, they'll do inside work, and they don't really even fly for the first week. Then let's say that you have 1,200 bees a day that are hatching. A week later, those 1,200 bees at a certain time in the evening will fly out and they actually, I, I use the term of GPSing their front door of their 
their hive. They fly out and do figure eights and they locate their hive. Even if there's 10 there, they know which one is there by the pheromone smell and by the location, like, like GPS. And they go out, it's like you being 16 years old and you get in your permit and you get to go drive. And then they become forage bees. And then the next day, another 12,000 fly and do their orientation flight. And uh, you know, that just continues on for me for about eight months out of the year. And then things slow down. Uh, bee that, a worker bee that hatches the end of October can live up to five months because they're not flying because it's cold and there's no food to gather. They're not flying as much. The life, lifespan of a worker bee is determined by how many air miles they fly. They're called worker bees because they work themselves to death. Wow. So there's, there's really no rest for these ones. They just like go, go, go. And then when they hit their, the odometer rolls over to zero, they just drop. If they're lucky enough, some experts think as the bees get older, if they know that their uh, air miles have been, uh, you know, I've used up my air miles uh, and they make it back to the hive, then they become guards so that when a bee, a worker bee stings, it pulls its stinger out and it dies within minutes after. Um, so it's going to die anyways. So they let the older ones maybe guard the hive or provide climate control by air conditioning uh, or whatever. So the whole social structure is just amazing to watch. The untrained eye will see chaos in the front of a hive. Bees flying in and out and whatever. But you can look and watch. I'll, I'll sit and watch to see what color of pollen they're bringing in to try to figure out what that source is and uh, whether it's from a pine tree or dandelion or maple tree or whatever. So, uh, you know, the more I can watch and learn about my bees, that's why I have an observation hive sometimes, put bees in there and start a new colony with an observation hive but I can watch and learn what they're doing, what's going on there. Yeah. So with those numbers, it now makes me think I probably have the wrong numbers in my head. When I think about like the beekeeping box that I think you see everywhere on like TV or movies, how many bees are in one box? That's going to vary for me at the time of year. But here's kind of what normally happens. If somebody's just starting, they get three pounds of bees. There's about 3,500 bees in a pound. And that's a start. So three is going to get you 10 to 11,000 bees. You're going to have about as a start with a queen. As that hive grows and expands over the summer, the, the season, where they can gather and fly and build up, there's a peak, they, they, they climb up to a peak and then it drops back off in here. And when they drop off for the winter, the bees will die off slowly and drop down to a good healthy number, may, might be uh, 25,000 bees in that hive. But 60,000 would be very common during the peak of the uh, honey flow, nectar flow season or more to have in a hive. So, so just seeing that box, doesn't mean there might be 10 frames in that box, but the bees might only be on five out of those 10 frames. Yeah. Um, I had this image in my head, like 
what's a what's a huge amount of bees like 500 bees would be an insane amount of bees to see somewhere and now i am semi-petrified by the thought of like opening the lid to one of these boxes with 60,000 bees and then sticking your hands in it yeah yeah nope and i a lot of times i will use my bare hands but i actually use wintergreen rubbing alcohol because that does two things that disinfects my hands from going from one hive to the next i don't want to be transferring diseases um if i'm not aware that i have disease but yeah you might be like my daughter you know how many how many bees is like at what number does it make it terrifying to you my daughter one bee and she is frozen and locked up and terrified um and i said get over it your dad's a beekeeper you know right here at my house i have 10 beehives and then I have a couple other yards with other bees, uh, beehives in other yards where I can make a split, take it to another place, let them develop and bring back and forth. But, you know, she she gets tense at one one bee. And here's uh, one of the things we do to test for mites is take a half a cup of bees. So just a half a cup is 300 bees. Just imagine now, multiply that, do the math and you figure out how much how many cups of bees will it take to make 60,000? And we're just scratching the surface with 300 bees uh, when we're testing for mites. Yeah, I I had kind of an internal laugh when you were like, oh yeah, we sell bees by the pound. I was like, that's an interesting thought because I think of all the things we buy by the pound and bees wouldn't have come to mind. Uh, but now that you put that into perspective, three pounds of bees also sounds terrifying to me. <laughs> Well, 10,000, 11,000 bees. Yeah. Yeah. No, that sounds uh, terrifying to me. <laughs> um, yeah. Something you'd see on fear factor or whatever. Yeah. Yep. It would be for mine <laughs> and fear would um, be a factor and I would be out of there. <laughs> and, you know, I'll uh, also go on just a quick rabbit trail that uh, there's been some really good research done by uh, several different uh, land grant universities that, are U.S. military people that have served over the seas in places like Afghanistan and and other places where it's war laden and uh, you know it it's it's terror. They have uh, post traumatic stress disorder, and they found it very therapeutic. It's hard for somebody to come from that situation and return back to civilization and just like okay, nothing happened, go on with your life. They can't adjust well. Becoming a beekeeper has a level of fearful respect for this critter that if you get stung enough times, you could die if you're not careful enough. So you have to focus and pay attention. You have to be somebody that is is dedicated to pay attention. Like I'll say, I'll pick up a frame. And a lot of times if I'm talking and teaching, that's when I get stung because I don't look to see that I'm smashing a bee when I pinch the other side of the frame. And then I smash a bee. Well, it gets mad. They're not going to eat me. They're vegetarians, but they are capable of stinging and reacting. And I'll get stung when I do something. You know, I drop a frame when I shouldn't have. Now all the bees fly off the frame. They hit the ground. Where are they going to go? They're going to go to me. I do wear a veil 99.9% of the time. Because if you get stung in the eye, it's just like taking a needle and poking you in your eye. You can go blind. I don't want to go blind. So when I teach my class and we go out to the bee yard, they must wear a veil. 
I don't care about the gloves. Um, in fact, I ask them not to wear gloves unless they're brand new. So they don't bring diseases from a hive that they came from into somebody else's hive where we have at the school. So um, be comfortable in what you need. I have people, I use wintergreen rubbing alcohol in my hand. And at the class, I had one lady, I think she took a bath in it. Uh, she would shower in it because she was so fearful to get stung. And like I said, when I'm teaching, it's usually I'm the one that's getting stung. Once in a while, somebody, rarely, but we are probably less than half a mile away from the local hospital. And so if somebody has a bad anaphylactic reaction, we're right there. And I have EpiPens when I do my B classes. So um, we're doubly protected. But some people want to be fully geared up from their feet all the way. You know, it's kind of like a moon suit, you know, and other people are comfortable. It's just whatever your comfort level is. Yeah, that's what I think, you know, I'm familiar with seeing in the media, at least, is like the full suit, top to bottom, that big white, like you said, a moon suit. Yep. Um, that's kind of what I figured everyone wore. And you're like, I don't even wear gloves. <laughs> yeah, it depends on what I'm doing in the hive. If I'm tearing a hive down and doing a full inspection, I'm going to wear gloves. If I'm doing a split, I'm probably going to wear gloves. But if, like installing a queen cage into a, a frame, uh, I didn't need to. I should have been a, should have had a veil, but I didn't go get a veil. I said, no, this hive is pretty calm. We go ahead and do that. And him and I both, this guy's on bee sting therapy. So it's only good if he gets stung, you know, I, it's, you know, uh, but you know, I, I, as a beekeeper, I really don't like getting stung. It's not my favorite thing, but it does have some medicinal benefits. If you have arthritis and some other things that bee sting therapy and bee venom uh, is used in the medical world. So I had a beekeeper company from India contact me once and ask if I would be willing to raise bees to gain and get and collect the, the venom from them and send it to India. And I said, eh, I don't want to kill my, I don't want to raise them to kill them just for venom, but some people will do that for medical. Which is interesting. Cause I didn't know like getting stung by a bee could have a medicinal effect, but it sounds like it has several. At the beginning of COVID, uh, actually in China, they were looking at the beekeepers in Wuhan because there was people that died of COVID in the same household as a beekeeper that got stung on a regular basis. And they're thinking, maybe there's something in bee venom that helps with COVID and didn't come out with any positive, totally positive, say, everybody go out and get stung, you'll be safe from COVID kind of thing. So, uh, but, you know, I think we owe, as advanced as we think we are, we really don't know what is out there in nature that are cures to what can, what ails us. Yeah, that makes sense. So when we're talking about you know, your beehives and you have this kind of farm setup, do you have to like actively feed these bees or do they kind of, they're self-sufficient and they do their own thing? That's going to be climate related. That's going to be location related. So we have two major flows of nectar in this area. The spring flow, which is pro predominantly, I'm, I'm surrounded by about 85% forest. In my, my bees will fly from their, their hive. They will fly a three mile radius to get food. 
And so there are some farms in my three mile radius, but it's predominantly pasture ground and forest ground. So in the spring, you've got dandelions and, and flowers coming up, but predominantly it's going to be bloom sources on trees. And then there's a drop off after June of summer, unless you have clover fields and other stuff. And then there's a spike in the fall. And so you have to know what's going on. If you are experiencing a drought, if the plants are drying up and burning up and there's no water, there's not going to be any nectar in those plants and the bees are going to be suffering. So you need to be constantly checking your beehives. Is the weight of that hive increasing or decreasing or staying the same? And so crucial times are here just last week, we had seven inches of snow and it snowed again the next day, but the temperatures just really dropped. That's a stress to those bees that need food. And my pear trees were in bloom and a lot of other th things were in bloom. So those blossoms get froze and now the nectar's gone, the pollen's gone, and you have to be able to do a visual assessment of your three mile fly zone and see, are my bees going to get the stuff that they need? If not, then you got to be a good manager and provide for them. I don't like feeding bees unless it's an emergency to keep them alive. This year's the first year I really lost bees in a, in a long time. I told you the average beekeeper in, in North America loses about 40% of their hives. This year I lost two hives and it's because of the weather that we had. We had a drought last summer and the bees needed fed during the winter. Those people that didn't check on them probably lost their hives. And I checked on them, but I didn't keep up with them exactly as I should. And so a couple, two of my hives uh, I ended up losing to. Wow. So they go out, they grab, you know, all the pollen, nectar, everything they need. They bring it back, obviously, when they're, you know, at the farm, they come to these boxes is that honeycomb hexagon shape that we see, is that natural to them or is that something we made to like be and, more efficient? Uh, that's, that's natural. And that's engineer. That's like a perfect shape because the next one's next. You get more cells side by side. They're on a slight uh, angle so that the honey doesn't drip out. So it's like a 12%, I forget exactly, but about 12% angle. So the honey stays in, but the bees will bring back and every flower source has a different flavor and every flower source, uh, the nectar has a different consistency of mo um, moisture content. The bees bring that back in their honey stomach. Uh, if you like honey, Colton, you're eating basically bee regurgitation. Um, because they have a honey stomach and then they have their own stomach, digestive stomach, and there's, there's a difference. So they bring back and store nectar, basically put it into a cell. Then they fan that and they reduce the moisture content at 16%. When that cell is at 16%, how do they know that? Bees are mathletes. They understand math extremely well. There's been some experiments that it's just amazing what they can do. They can tell time, they can tell distance, and uh, they know fractions. They, they're, they're, they're amazing. And um, they will cap the, that honey off at 16% moisture. And once that's capped, honey never goes bad. 
that's something I had heard is that there is no expiration to honey. Like it can kind of crystallize up, but it right. can just be reconstituted into right. honey. Right. And the old practice in the uh, pyramids, when a, a Egyptian lord or you know king, um, they would put it in a burial tomb or sarcophagus. They would put honeycomb in there, capped honeycomb as it was considered the nectar of the gods. So when they went to the afterlife, they would have something that would never go bad. You know, if, if you've ever played that game, um, if I was stranded on a deserted island, what would you want to have? Now that you know something, what would you want to have? I mean, it sounds like honey is a pretty good option, especially oh, no, if you're- that's too, the... that's too limited. I'd want to have a beehive because <laughs> a beehive would continue to make honey. I, I'd only last so long. But yeah, honey would be ideal because it's not just good for you. It's, um, it provides moisture. So you're not going to dehydrate. It provides energy because of the sugar. And it actually is better than Neosporin if you get hurt because- it's a sweet acid and bacteria does not grow in acid. So, you so just they put use it honey for on an injury. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't buy Neosporin. I put honey on a cut or something and it heals. It actually heals better because it's moisture with what's involved with it. What, what's, what's included in it. And people that have had some severe burns, it helps regenerate skin growth without, um, as much scarring. So if you've been burnt, a lot of times, uh, like I know Shriners hospitals have burn hospitals for kids. They will use honey on wounds that actually keep bacteria from happening uh, and getting in and entering, and it is less scarring. So there's just a lot of good health benefits for eating and medicinal, and it tastes good. Yeah, no, it sounds I mean, it makes sense when you're saying, yeah, it's antibacterial. So no right. reason not to use it on your wound. It has a level of hydration in it. Right. So especially if you're burned and you can't, you know, have something dry on top of that, like that works there too. It makes sense. It makes sense to me. It's one of those things you don't think about until it, you know, it comes up. But now hearing that it makes sense. You had also mentioned, Joe, you know, they, they were using it in Egypt when they were putting people in tombs. Is that kind of how long we've been intentionally farming honey with bees? There's some Egyptian hieroglyphics that denote beekeepers. Definitely one of the first insects that have been collected and managed. And um, there's some cave markings in Spain that they found uh, off the top of my head. I forget the date that they found those markings, but uh, I have, I can pull out of a drawer that's just right here to, uh, within an arm's reach. It, it's hard to just visualize this, but before coins were minted, honeycomb was used for bartering because it was considered such a, a high commodity. And so one of the earliest coins that is minted, I actually have one, it's from 300 BC, has a B on, imprinted onto the uh, silver coin because it was so used to, used to uh, using as a, a means of money or currency for bartering. People thought if you, you know, if you caught a swarm on a day, that was a good day to 
have a business exchange or uh, if be sworn when you got married, that was a good sign. And so there's a lot of history based on beekeeping. And it's something that people uh, do pretty much all over the world where bees were years ago. And then they came over with the early settlers from Europe. Yeah, there's some bees that aren't so nice, the Africanized bees. Um, and remember, hornets are not bees. People clump. And we had here a year ago, the murder hornet that everybody was worried about up in um, Oregon, Washington State, a couple uh, hives of that. But it's got its names because those are, I call them yellow jackets on steroids. And they're called murder, not because they kill humans, although they can, they kill they go in and bite honeybees and chop them in half and eat them. That's the murdering part of where they got their name, I think, originally from Japan. But And we have Asian ones and we have European ones. I have European ones here locally, and uh, they they will go in my bee, just right at the front of that box, and they'll just wait for bees to come and go, and they just bite into them. And so uh, the bees have the ability then they will, it's called balling them. They will get a whole bunch of honeybees around that hornet to where it raises the temperature so much that they cook them. They, they just overheat them and they kill them. But it takes all those bees working together. How many bees have to die before they say, all right, you're out of here. But, um, you know, they, they, uh, they can defend that. Uh, it's the mite that is uh, one that's hardest for them to defend. It's so small. And, you know, like you or I would get a tick, you know, sometimes you get it, you don't even know it's there till it's too late. You know? But you know, it's just a constantly changing. If everything was, again, easy, everybody would have a beehive in the back of their yard. If the bees didn't sting, and it was easy to get the honey from, you didn't have much management, it would just be, well, time to go get some honey and you'd walk out and get some honey and be done with it. But um, it takes some scientific knowledge to be able to manage them and it takes some common sense if the barometric pressure is changing drastically that's not a good day to go out in your bee yard because animals critters know when something's coming you know, you'll see bees funneling into a beehive and you think what are they doing and then you see look over the mountain uh, my backdrop of my house is the eastern continental divide and so i look on top of where the mountain is and oh the clouds are all black over there there's a storm coming you know, they, they sense that stuff and they know. Gotcha. Well, I had one more question for you and then I had some listener questions. Okay. The last thing I was just going to bring up because I don't understand what it is, is I've seen videos of beekeepers with like a handheld tool that is smoking. It looks like smoke. What is that? That's a smoker. That's okay. a common, common tool. And some people think that it calms the bees. It really doesn't calm the bees. Remember I told you, Colton, that the queen sets out a pheromone for that hive. It, disrupt, it disrupts one of their communication methods by pheromones. So if you have a burning smoke, then the queen pheromone can't change to aggression and they're not gonna come after you as an invader. They're gonna think their hive's on fire. And so the workers will get some of that honey that's in the cell that's not capped and they'll put it in their stomach and they'll fly out. And so some of the bees are leaving and they'll be gone for maybe 20, 30 minutes and come back and see 
oh, everything okay. But you're interrupting that communication pattern that could change from we're happy, we're calm. Now we're aggressive and go fight whatever it is took our lid off. So that's why a smoker is used. Uh, don't believe what you see in the B movie, um, the, 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 the kids B movie. Uh, what what is um, you know Hollywood eyes sometimes, but but it is a technique that some people use. I don't always use a smoker. Uh, it depends again on what I'm doing to get. If I'm working with honey frames and they're not capped, I don't want to have smoke blowing into my honey because that can taint the flavor of the honey that I want to sell. So uh, that's just a, a technique. And you know the old timers. Um, hundred years ago, they wouldn't wear veils, but they would have a pipe and they would puff on a pipe while they were working there. So they would just puff harder and put smoke around their face while they're working with their bees and wouldn't even use veils sometimes. So uh, that's just a, a protection to keep them from becoming angry and aggressive and uh, getting stung. Gotcha. It just kind of confuses the whole system. Yep. Distract, yeah, distracts us while you get to do the inspection that you want to do. Sometimes I just use sugar water and spray on it. So this bee gets wet and this bee comes over and licks the sugar off of this one. And so it distracts them as well. So there's different things that you can do to keep them calm. Or, you know, if you're into them on a regular basis, they're not so bad. I can mow around with my riding mower. I can mow pretty close to my beehives. But um, if I get one that the hive, anytime I get close, the bees guards come out and sting me. Then what I will do is I will kill that queen and have them. And I will do some things to make another queen um, because she sets the aggression pheromone and, and tells the other ones, go out and get that guy riding around on a mower. Um, I had a bear come and attack my hives several years ago and I couldn't mow near them. Uh, afterwards, because any time the ground vibrated, they thought a bear would, it was a bear. They, they, met, they uh, imprinted that ground movement to a bear and they'd come after me. So just have to requeen and it sets, it's like hitting, if you, you know, a gamer hitting the replay button or a reset button, you know, it just kind of resets that. It stops um, things for a little bit, calms down and then starts off with a new queen. All righty. Uh, well, I had a couple listener questions. The first one I put in here, I don't know if you actually have an answer for it, but it seems like if anyone does, maybe you will. Uh, they asked, what does the bee's knees mean and why do we say that? I'm going to tell you, Colton, I have no idea. I don't say it, but I don't know why I'll have to. That's something I have to do some research on to figure out. Yeah, I read it and I was like, this is kind of a question for like a, uh, a you know, a sociological perspective for somebody that yeah. knows like why we use certain turns of phrase. But I thought bees knees. All right. It's mildly appropriate. I'll ask anyway, just in case. The Humor next one, anyways. Yeah, why not? Uh, the next one, they said, my doctor told me to eat local honey to help reduce allergies. Does this help? Here's how it only helps. I have allergies. Dust mites are my biggest allergy. Bees collect no honey or nectar from dust. There's nothing there. My second is ragweed. Bees collect no nectar from ragweed, but they do collect a lot of pollen. So 
what, what we do as beekeepers is we extract honey. The um, consumer does not want to have that honey. They want to hold it up and see nice, clear honey. They don't want to see spots of pollen all through it. And so the ideal thing is to know what you're allergic to. Let's say somebody's allergic to pine. And when pine are in bloom, that their allergies just go rampant. What they need to do is find a beekeeper that collects pollen and collects it during that time that the pine trees are in bloom and take that. That's the equivalent of getting an allergy shot. So just globally saying that honey helps with allergies only if you have that allergy, honey will have some benefit, but you'll get better bang for your buck if you get the pollen from that timing of whatever that plant was in bloom. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it makes sense to me. Like, yeah, if I'm allergic to bees, like obviously drinking honey is not going to help my bee allergy at all. Yeah, It's one of those, like if they, yeah, obviously like, yes, local honey is kind of their key term in there. Like if you are allergic to a plant that is very local to your area and you have a beekeeper who sells honey that is also very local to your area. Yeah. You could probably get some benefit out of that. Right. But it's not like I can go down to the store and buy, you know, honey off a shelf and be better. <laughs> right. And if you get it off the shelf, it may not be local. It may come from India or some other country. Sure. Um, last year was the first time I specifically saw bees getting nectar and pollen from poison ivy. I don't know if taking honey and nectar from that source, you have to have a lot of it. I mean, they would have to get a lot of it because remember when you mix up, it's homogenized, the, all the frames are capped, uh, uncapped and you spin them out. And so you got clover honey, you got honey uh, from tree sources, from other plant sources, and a little bit of poison ivy, it would take a concentrated amount. And maybe then you wouldn't get poison ivy as easily if you took that on a regular basis. But there are some honeys that are poisonous, not only to the bees, but to um, humans as well. Rhododendron honey is toxic to bees, but they will make it if that's the only thing in bloom. Bumblebees you'll see around rhododendron, but you won't hardly ever see honeybees around them because... Um, and, and if they would make honey and humans ate it, it, it could be toxic to us too. Interesting. Is there, is that just one of those, like you have to know if there's rhododendron in your area? Um, no, it's just, you have to have the solution to anything. Pollution is dilution kind of. The, the, so if you just have, uh, let's say two ounces of rhododendron honey in a beehive, and you pull 40 pounds of honey off and spin it out, two ounces to 40 isn't going to be a problem. Yeah. The only time honeybees are going to make it, remember it's poisonous to them too. They have their honey stomach where they go and get the nectar. Then they have their own digest. So it's not going to kill them to go get that nectar. It's going to kill them when they eat that in the winter time to make it through the winter. Uh, that's what's going to kill them. So it's got to be a drought where there's no other plants available. All the honey is gone and all that's left is this nectar from rhododendron. Yeah. And that's a pretty rare case, but it's interesting. One of the things that um, is unique, what makes honeybees so valuable for agriculture is when the scout does 
her thing to go out and find a flower source that's in bloom, uh, whether pollen or nectar, what that will do is um, that scout will go back, do a waggle dance, and it's a figure eight. That waggle dance gives the other bees in the hive the information of what color the bloom is, what the pollen or the uh, usually the nectar, what it tastes like, and how far away and what direction it is from the hive. They get basically their GPS information and they go right to that source. So I challenge anybody that's listening is if you see a honeybee and watch and try to prove me wrong, that that honeybee will go to a dandelion, skip 10 other flowers and bloom and go to another dandelion. That bee gets its walking papers and said, you're to go get dandelion nectar and that's it. Keep doing that till you don't get any more. And so that's why it makes great, they make great pollinators for things like apple trees, fruit trees, almond trees, because they're only going to almonds. So this almond tree gets pollinated with this almond tree because those bees are only going to what the scout told them to go to. So there might be flowers underneath the almonds when they're in bloom, but they're not going to those, they're going to the almonds. So cross-pollination, um, it's called, um, is called pollination constancy. It's that they're, they're, they know what their marching orders are, get it from there, then they go back and they'll see another scout and they say, oh, by the way, this flower's in bloom. A pear tree's in bloom. So go go this way and get their information. Uh, so that's what makes them great. And then what I do is I actually separate my honey when I spin it out. I go through my hives. Instead of pulling full boxes off full of honey, I pull out frames of the same color so that you can get all the different colors, light to very dark. Some honey will be almost will look like it's black, reddish black uh, from buckwheat or some of the other plants that are around here. Others are almost clear white like water. And and so you do that, you get the enhanced flavor of the of the nectar source. And instead of buying just the honey in the store, it's all the same color. Yeah, that was actually the last listener question said, why is some honey darker than others? And is one better? When I teach, I usually ask how many people like dark chocolate? I don't. I like milk chocolate. It's a preference, but every flower source has its own unique color of honey and taste of honey. So my favorite is basswood. That's my personal favorite. I I love uh, that taste. It's not super sweet. Some people like locusts. Some people like the dark, rich, robust um, of buckwheat honey. I'm not so much in favor of that. I like basswood tulip poplar are some of my favorites all right well this has been super informative i know i've learned a lot i'm sure everybody listening has been probably as thoroughly shocked as i have been (laughs) no bees died and colton didn't get stung that's right yet (laughs) i'm gonna be thinking about that all day uh (laughs) but i have appreciated your time uh i'd like to give you some some time to just kind of tell people where they can find you or reach out to you if they have more questions or they want to learn more from you Sure. Uh, one of the places that uh, they're welcome to join in, I have a Facebook group called Buzzing Around the Tri-State. Right where I live, uh, from Pennsylvania through Maryland into West Virginia, it's only about five miles wide. So the beekeeping beekeepers around here were in a group, in an association, 
And uh, I set up a Facebook page. So when I'm teaching, when there's different things, a swarm is somewhere. But I have people in other countries that are part of buzzing around the tri-state and they're more than welcome to join that. It's uh, open to the um, to the world for anybody that wants to get a hold of me. That's probably the easiest way. The other is I have an email address and I'm willing to mentor anybody that has questions on beekeeping. I'd rather make more beekeepers that are sustainable than just sit, go out there and sell honey. And so that's, I guess, why I, I, I teach it and try to help them become successful. My email address is Cooperville, my last name, C-O-O-P-E-R-V-I-L-L-E, uh, Cooperville at AtlanticBB.net, Atlantic like the ocean and BB for broadband. So there's two ways is how they can get a hold of me. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. I've appreciated your time. It's been actually a lot of fun to kind of learn about bees, despite my innate fear and allergy <laughs> and everything else that uh, keeps me up at night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's sometimes that I go to bed and work with bees so much that I hear the buzzing at night. That's a calming effect on me, not uh, you know a tense, uh, fearful effect, but I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Thanks for listening to the Just Dumb Enough podcast. If this was your first episode, I hope you liked it and find even more in the backlog that you enjoy. And if you enjoy the show, remember to share it with the people that you know. It is the best way for the show to grow and for me to keep making new episodes. If you want to suggest topics or have questions for guests, reach out to me, dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or on any of the social media pages. Lastly, the rankings have moved around a bit, making May a fairly interesting month so far. Number one, as usual, we have the United States, this time with Oregon and Michigan being the top states. Number two, Canada with Ontario pulling in the best numbers. Number three, Japan climbing all the way into the top three for I think the first time ever. And it's super exciting to see that. If you are a listener and live in Japan, reach out. I have burning questions. Number four, the United Kingdom. And number five, a tie between Sweden and Spain. Very fun. That's all I've got for you this week. I'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye.